Malachi chapter 1. We will be reading verses 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is God's word. We are continuing our series, Interventions. Uh, Before the arrival of Jesus, God used the Old Testament writing prophets to to speak a a provocative message, a sort of wake-you-up sort of message to to woo, to draw God's people back into a right relationship with him. The reality is that God's people then, just as we are now, were professional rebels rebels, professional wanderers. It's what they did best. They got off track with God. And one way that people wander from God is by holding in pain, holding in rejection, holding in anger. And a lot of us, even all of us know from experience when it happens, our hearts start to to get hardened and we start to push God away and we start to do our own thing and go our own way. So God sends a man named Malachi, a prophet named Malachi to his people. And the entire book of Malachi consists of Q&As. God makes an opening statement. Then he allows his people to question him. And then he responds to their questions. Opening statement, questions. It's like a press conference that God is holding. And when questions, he's not a father who flies off the rails like an angry dad. He's not someone who curtly replies, because I said so. Rather, he patiently responds. And he responds in a way that we probably would not, if you or I were God's PR person, if you or I were God's press secretary, we probably wouldn't respond in this way. He responds in a way that only God can. For the first time, God, the first time God called me to be a pastor in a local church, it was in this vineyard church uh, just north of Chicago, Illinois. I was a youth pastor there. And in 2004, that church started a, 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 an initiative called Servant Evangelism. And the idea was to, to serve unconditionally or give a, an unconditional gift and hand people a little card along with that gift or along with that service, a card like this one right here and up on the screen. And this card said... In big letters, God loves you, no strings attached. And what we would do, we would do things like hand out water or or sort of ice pops to people at at festivals during the summer. We'd wash cars. We would gift wrap gifts outside of of stores and boutiques. And by the way, if anyone would ever want to start a ministry like this at Sunrise Community Church, I am wide open to that idea. Please just let me know. I think it's a wonderful way to show people, hey, God loves you, again, unconditionally. Our youth also got involved in this initiative. That summer, I took our, our, our one of the things we did is I took our summers, uh, our student leaders, sorry, to a, a gas station or a petrol station to actually clean the bathrooms of that gas station. Kim Wendell, you may remember doing this. She was part of our youth group back in the day. 
And um, we were getting near the end of cleaning this gas station. And the manager, uh, I was going to hand the manager this card, and I, and I gave it to him so he could read it as I explained. I said, we just want to tell you that God loves you, no strings attached. And he gave me immediately a very curious and telling reply. He says, I think you must have me confused for someone else. I, I don't know how God has loved me. And I was still a very young pastor. Uh, so I try my best. I respond by, by asking him about the blessings. What about the blessings in your life? And he immediately turned to the pain, to the hurt of his life. Turns out he was originally from the Ukraine. And he moved over here uh, with his wife and his young daughter. Uh, but his wife was deported due to some stupid technicality, as he put it. So he's over here in the United States, or over there alone by himself, without her, without his daughter. And he goes on to tell me, he's like, you know, as a young man, I, I believe and accepted that Jesus died for my sins. I, I was a participant in the church. And while I was a, definitely an imperfect person, I loved and served God. So how has God loved me? Clearly, there, there was pain, there was rejection, there was even a little bit of anger behind that question. Nevertheless, he genuinely wanted to know, how, how has God loved me? How would you have responded to that? This is the very question that God's people ask of him. God declares, I have loved you, and his people ask back, how have you loved us? How have you loved me? I think you have me confused for someone else. God's people may have been thinking of Edom when they said that, the nation of Edom, which is not only quite literally Israel's brother, more on that in a moment, but to these 5th century Jews saying this to God, it seemed like Edom was the father's favorite child. God's people had, had lost all of their land because they rebelled against him. And after God gave back the most important bits, including Judah and Jerusalem, Edom had not only remained intact this whole time, but they'd actually grown. They'd actually gained from Judah's loss. As you can see from this map up here, I'm going to show you the Edomites moved into what used to be the southern half of the southern kingdom of Judah. The bottom half of the southern kingdom of Judah was now theirs. Meanwhile, Judah was tiny. Judah was about the size of Grand Cayman if north, the North Sound was filled in. Imagine the North Sound completely filled in with land. And we always say, man, Grand Cayman is so tiny, it's so small. This was the promised land. This is what remained for God's people. A little bit bigger than Grand Cayman. So that's what Judah had. We learned from the prophet Obadiah. We learned from him that Edomites openly mocked and laughed at the Israelites, at their plight when they got deported. They had more land. They'd been making fun of them the whole time. Edomites also had protected areas. They lived in the mountainous regions, which was very important militarily. When you, when you depended on military strength for survival, they lived in a stronghold. People never really tried to attack the Edomites. Secure, protected. But what about for Judah? It had been nearly a century since they got all those great promises, like the kind we read about last week in Haggai. Prosperity, expansion, peace, the glory of the new temple. It had been a century, and the harsh reality for Judah, prolonged drought, crop failure, pestilence. That's what they had, and that's what they were focusing on. 
So knowing this, maybe you could feel the pain, the rejection, even the anger behind that question. Okay, God, how have you loved us? Because I don't see it. God responds in a way that that really only God can. And I'm going to go ahead and summarize his response like this. You are adopted with an everlasting heritage and a purposeful parent. Let me say that again. You are adopted with an everlasting heritage and a purposeful parent. Let me look at each piece of this. Let's look at this together. First of all, you are adopted. Verse 2, God asks the question, are you not Sorry, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob. Jacob was the younger brother of Esau. Older brothers were always the favorite in the family. They carried on the family name. They got the bulk of the family inheritance. And yet through Isaac, God chose Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel and becomes his own nation. Esau also gets his own nation. They're called the Edomites. God chose Jacob. Now, to open our service, we heard about the adoption story of seven children into the Dinahi family from Bangkok, from China, from Africa, from Romania. George, you saw up there the one playing the piano, shared that to be born with a deformity like his and to be born like that in a place like Romania was to be considered cursed by God. And yet, There, among all the children in that Romanian orphanage, George was chosen. I choose him. I want him. And such, friends, is the reality for all who have trusted their lives to Jesus Christ. The Father points at you and says, I choose you. I want you. Here are some wonderful scriptures that talk about this reality through Jesus. Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 1.12. Here's Galatians 4, 4-7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise, he goes on to say. Wonderful truths. What does adoption look like in God's family? What does that look like for us? Malachi says it includes a couple significant things, significant blessings. It includes an everlasting heritage and a purposeful parent. So let's, let's look at that for a moment. Everlasting heritage. Malachi tells us in verse 3 that Edom's heritage is a deserted wasteland left to jackals. Now, upon hearing that, God's people would and should immediately compare that to their own inheritance inheritance they have as God's chosen ones, as God's people. What's their heritage? What's their inheritance? And for those who trust Jesus, the Father gives us an inheritance that the Bible says can never perish, spoil, or fade. There are tons of of wonderful components to this inheritance, total healing, a future without sin or sorrow. You get to share in glory and share in authority, the likes of which we have never seen or experienced. But the core of that inheritance, the core of it, is Jesus himself. We get Jesus. 
face to face, in the flesh, to know and to be with him forever, to reach out and actually touch our Savior. That's what we get. And in the meantime, just to to remind us of this, that this is a guarantee, the Father sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And look at what we're told about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1. In him you also, and Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. One day we will acquire Jesus face to face. In the meantime, the Holy Spirit keeps pointing us to Jesus, reminding us of Jesus, putting the spotlight on Jesus. And so we have an everlasting heritage as an adopted child. We also have a very purposeful parent. Read with me in verse 4 again, if you will look there. If Edom says, we are shattered, but hey, we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They are going to be called the wicked country, the people for whom the Lord is angry forever. To the one he didn't choose, God uses hardship as a punishment for sin. All that mocking Edom did, all that rebellion, all that laughing and scorning, that hardship's a punishment for sin. For the next 50 years, in the next 50 years, these these people called the the Nabataean Arabs gradually forced the Edomites from that home, that homeland we saw. They they did so through intermarriage, and they did so just by being neighborly pests. (laughs) No one wanted to be around them. So they gradually, they were semi-nomadic people, they, they moved in all their herds. And so the cities of Edom dilapidated into ruin while their herds overgrazed and destroyed otherwise arable land. They tried to rebuild, but as promised here in verse 4, God frustrated that attempt when in 185 B.C., a Jewish man by the name of Judas Maccabeus crushed a last-ditch effort by the remaining Edomites to reclaim their land. And so God, boom, fulfilled his prophecy. Because that's what he does. He's faithful to what he says. God used their hardship as punishment. But what about God's people? What about those chosen? What about their hardship? God has something to say about that hardship as well. Through Jesus Christ. He says this. He says that God uses hardship as discipline, not for punishment, but for family resemblance ultimately for family resemblance. Hebrews 12, 5 through 10 puts it this way. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Listen to this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, For what son is there whom the father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to this father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us, that is, our fathers, for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But the father disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness." He's with, that we might share in his holiness. That is to share in the family resemblance. The Father is holy. We become more holy. We look more holy. Romans 8, 28 through 29 puts it this way. All things work together for the good of those who love him, those called according to his purpose. 
But here's the next part. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son. So there's three pieces there we can pay attention to. We should. All things work for good. That means even the hard things, those called to his purpose. There's a purpose behind those hard things. And that purpose is ultimately to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. To take on, sorry, to take on the family resemblance. George Dennehy, while adopted, will never look like his dad. Neither will any of their six adopted kids. They're never going to look like their, their father or their mother. God uses hardship to, to drive us to submit, to depend on, to plead with the Father, just as Jesus perfectly submitted to, depended on, pleaded with the Father in his life. And the more we do that, the more we take on the resemblance of Jesus. We take on family resemblance. That's why the Bible uses both the terms adopted and born again to describe salvation for a Christian. We're included even though we don't look like Jesus. And then we're born again, so we get this new chance to take on the family resemblance. It's beautiful. It's both. As a Christian, you're adopted and you're born again. So here's the encouragement, guys. When things look rubbish in your life, especially when compared to people who are not yet part of the Father's family, remember, God is saying yours is the adoption. Yours is the everlasting heritage. Yours is the purposefulness even during suffering. That is all yours through Jesus Christ. So why me then? Why you? Why me? Why would, why would God pick me? I was walking in the same place. I trusted Jesus, my life to Jesus, three years earlier. And I was pondering that very question one day. Like, God, why here did you choose me? And I was thinking specifically of my brother, too, at that time. He was on my mind. He had not yet trusted his life to Christ. And I remember asking God, why, why would you choose me over my brother? My brother was the firstborn, overachiever, well-behaved. He represented our family far better than I ever did. Like, God, why wouldn't you choose him? It's a question that the Apostle Paul essentially asks in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, chapter 9. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice then on God's part? Is, is there injustice that say, I'm actually going to choose the least likely, not the most likely? There's not. And one of the pieces of evidence Paul uses to say that it's not is actually quoting Malachi 1-2. Paul says, remember what the scripture says? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So he doesn't love us. Because there's some worthwhile quality in me. That's not why he loves us. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7, God reminds his people of this. He says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were actually the fewest of all people. In the ancient Near East, a nation's identity was measured primarily in numbers because that was the means for survival. Strength in numbers meant military strength. That means you could protect yourself. It meant you could survive. Think about what in your life allows you, what about you allows you to survive? What do you kind of lean back on? What do you rely on? 
What quality? Ever thought to yourself, God loves me because, you know, it's me. It's Neil Montgomery here. It's Lucas Robbins here. Like, hey, God, it's me, right? We've always, I come from this family. I grew up in this community. I'm known for being the fun one, the smart one, the reliable one, the one people want to be around. God, it's me. It's not so much a conscious thought, more of a sort of back of the head assumed idea. I'm okay because it's, it's, I'm me. But that's not why God loves you. He doesn't love you either because you willingly want a relationship with him. Romans 9, 15, 16 says, God says, hey, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but completely upon God's mercy. You might say, God, but I'm here. I showed up to church. I'm willing. It doesn't matter. Now, your readiness and willingness is probably evidence that God has set his love on you. But it's not the reason why he loves you. He doesn't love you because of what you can do for him. In the book of Titus, chapter 3, Paul says this. At one time, we too were all, we were all foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. But when the, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. There it is again. Yet how often even subtly, in the back of our minds even, after finally having a good performance as a father, as a mother, as a spouse, as a citizen, as a human, as an employee, do we finally think, yeah, okay, now I get it. Now I see why you love me, God. There is some potential there. That's not it either. You know, the Hebrew word for deceitful is literally Jacob or Jacob. Yeah, the same one the father would point to and say, I choose you. Jacob stole what wasn't his. He pretends to be someone else to get an inheritance to his half-blind father who's on his deathbed. Jacob pretends to be someone else. Jacob rigs his profit margin behind his boss's back to get ahead. That's the kind of person God chose. I think of of George Dennehy again. Deformed without arms, weighed nine pounds at the age of one and a half. Such a, such a man gets why he wasn't chosen for, for the reasons of there's some quality in me. There's something about me people must love. He gets that he was chosen simply because of love. It's obvious to him. Similarly, Jacob had, had a deformity or disease we all have called sin. This natural desire to go our own way. But because Jacob's was obvious, so much more obvious than was the preciousness of being chosen by God. It was obvious, God, this is not because of me. It's because you love. It's who you are. That's why God loves us. It's who he is. He says to those like myself, I choose you. Yes, you. It's amazing. So what then do we do about it? What now? How, how are those deformed and diseased with sin like me supposed to respond to such an amazing and precious gift of being chosen and adopted by the living God into his family? Let me tell you one more story about an adopted child. At age five, John Gilbert was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a genetic degenerative disease 
caused by an inability to get literally strength, to get protein to your muscles. And so they just degenerate. At age 25, the disease finally claimed John's life. Every year, John lost something. Uh, One year, he lost the ability to run. The next year, to walk straight. Eventually, he couldn't stand up. Most of his life, John wasn't chosen for anything by his peers because there seemed to be no, no quality about him worthwhile to choose. He wasn't, however, invited to special functions because people had compassion on him, including one very prominent dinner auction. And when that auction began, one item in particular caught young John's attention. It was a basketball signed by the players of the professional basketball team, the Sacramento Kings. United States professional basketball team, the Sacramento Kings. And this is the years, if you follow basketball, when the Kings were good. They had Chris Weber, Lottie Divac, people like that. All right, side note. But John so desperately desired that basketball that when it came up for bid, he, he, he almost unconsciously felt his arm go up and raise his hand. And as soon as his mom saw his hand go up, she's like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> We cannot afford that basketball, John. She watched the bidding go up and up. It rose to like an absurd amount, way past the, probably the value of the actual ball. And finally, a man made a bid that no one could possibly match. It was way out of the ballpark. So he goes up front. He claims his basketball. But instead of going back to his seat, he walked across the room, gently placed it into the thin, small hands of this boy, who so desperately desired it. They were the hands that would never dribble a ball down the court. They would never shoot the ball or pass to a teammate. But nevertheless, hands that would cherish this ball for as long as he lived. There was a writer there who who was writing about this, and he said this. He said, you know, it took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I said, I remember hearing gasps all around the room and then tears. There was thunderous applause. To this day, he says, I'm still amazed. And he asked the question in his article. He said, have you ever been given a gift you can never have gotten for yourself? And what was your response? I think about this when it comes to myself being deformed and degenerating because of sin. Yet God chooses me. How would I respond? God's word has the answer here. Malachi, the only possible response to the gift of being selected by the Father, comes here in verse 5. Read that with me again. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The only response we can possibly have is is a life of, of expanded praise. There's a, there's a ten, there was a tendency among God's people to confine his unconditional love and care within the borders of Israel, to see his, to see his purposefulness, his sovereignty in all the expected places, just like you and I tend to do, to praise God and for, for Sunday worship, for, for, for community group, for Bible study, reading our Bible or while singing songs in the car. God is saying in verse 5, my purposeful love spills beyond the borders of all those religious and spiritual things. You can praise me for, for a delay 
or cancellation, which allows you to send a little note or say a prayer for someone long forgotten. You can give praise for a new doctor who actually takes your insurance, right? You, you can give praise for the lunch that your child makes, though it's very imperfect and doesn't include what probably needs to be in their lunch, but the fact that they did it. You can give praise for hardships because the long view is these can transform me into taking on the family resemblance. And finally, praise for your chosenness because God picked you out of the lineup and said, I want you. Um, A really great author named Henry Nouwen once said, you have to celebrate your chosenness constantly. This means saying thank you to God for having chosen you. Thank you to all who remind you of your chosenness. He says, gratitude is the most fruitful way of deepening your consciousness that your salvation is no accident, but a divine choice of you. And yet, here's Nowen, a man who spent the final decade of his esteemed life not only caring for the handicapped and obscurity, but struggling daily with same-sex attraction that would frustrate him till the day of his death. A man who could easily have looked around and thought, wait a minute, I'm not my father's favorite. I couldn't be. But he steadfastly praised God for his adoption, which included this everlasting inheritance from a very purposeful parent. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that all of us here would respond with praise by saying, great is the Lord for choosing those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ. And God, yet we, we know that the only way to continue to respond in this expanded praise that spills out beyond the borders of our lives is by continually thinking on, meditating on, drinking in the reality of our undeserved chosenness. So help us, God, remember that every day this week to think on it, to, to, to read your words about it, to consider how much you truly love us. Father, I also recognize there's one more response as well. For for those of us here who may be yet to be included in the Father's family, who have yet to say yes to Jesus and trust our lives to him, I pray that they would see the privilege of being in God's family, in your family forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.